so glad I have. Okay, um, what I wanted to do first, if I could, is set a little bit of the backdrop because we this isn't always clear in our heads. This is a, a, a rough timeline of, of the big picture stuff. And then let's hop right into heritage, if that seems okay. Um, nobody knows when Abraham was around. Nobody knows, because time just wasn't recorded that way. Um, the, the really hard dates that we know where all this stuff is happening are these one, two, three, which is why I've written them on the bottom. These are hard dates. The top are soft dates. Um, so, you know, we've got Abraham and Moses and Exodus and generations and all that bit. And somewhere around 1050, now this is BCE, and somewhere around that is when Saul is made the king of Israel. Um, Israel means everybody at the time. Okay? Now, this is a funny thing, because we, we use these words not realizing they actually have uh, ambiguity and precision depending on the time. So, so this year we have Israel, 1050. Which means that David is probably somewhere around, well, 1030. That's when David is king of Israel. David's kingship lasts a bit, right? Um, what we know for sure, though, now we're getting into hard dates. So I'm going to put David here. And what David really does is unites the country like never before. Remember, there's 12 tribes. They're clans, is the way to think of it. And he brings the clans together, and he does something really interesting, which you read about in Chronicles. He makes a capital in a, in a city where, um, in new territory. So he didn't put it in um, land occupied by Judah or land occupied by Benjamin or Gad. He conquers the city of Jerusalem, and that's the new capital. And see, nobody owned it before, so nobody has more power than anybody else. It's sort of a shrewd political move. Um, I was born in Kentucky, and when they made the capital, you know this in state capitals, they often are in bizarre places. There were two cities, Lexington and Louisville. Which one was going to be the capital? Frankfurt. There is nothing in Frankfurt, Kentucky, I want you to know right now, except it's neither Lexington nor Louisville, and that was critical. right? So that's where Jerusalem gets, and we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Um, what we know is that David's son, Solomon, succeeds him to the throne. Solomon is a particular kind of king we'll get to look at next week. When Solomon dies, just to lay the ark, Solomon dies, um, the one nation splits into two. And this is why it's weird. We call this Israel. But when Solomon dies, Israel means the north, the northern ten tribes, and Judah means the south, and we're really talking about two tribes. Judah and Benjamin in the south, and in the north we're talking about Reuben and Dan and Naphtali and Issachar, etc. Okay? If you're ever wondering why are Jewish people called Jews, it's because they're from Judah. So it's a shortening of the tribe, because in 722, so that's 200 years after the split, Israel gets wiped off the map. That is, those northern ten tribes are all gone, never to be found again. The land is conquered and the people are sort of deported all over the known world. So they really are the lost tribes. That's what they're called. Who knows where they are? 
Judah's turn happens in these three different years in which they're raided by Babylon and taken into exile in Babylon. Not all the people, only the smart ones. Only the educated ones. Right? It's sort of like the Manhattan Project, except those people wanted to leave. <laughs> this is a forced Manhattan Project where the best and brightest people from Judah got taken into exile in Babylon. And they were there until 540 when they got to come back. And not all of them came back. That was very broad brush. But, but I want to lay, this is the trajectory that we've got here. Most of what we read in preparation for this was telling you names of people here, names of people there, but was really centered on the, on the era of uh, David as being king. I hope that was helpful. If you got lost in the reading, it was easy to get lost. That's what we were reading about. You might say, why on earth were there so many names? Because, good Lord, that was boring. Um, it was. It was. And, of course, this is meant to be sort of an annal of the king. It's doing things like tracing important people, petty nobles, descent, Sometimes, when your eyes glade over, you know, I'm going to tell you, there were times I just sort of skimmed through the names to see if there was some interesting factoid that was going to happen. That happened. There are some interesting names. So I just want to throw out some interesting bits here. Um, and we, we talked about this last week, that the Bible means books, not one, books, and that the books sometimes disagree. So let me ask you, traditionally, who killed Goliath? David did, right? Well, yes and no. David kills Goliath in 2 Samuel. We didn't read that this time. In what we read, who killed Goliath? Do you remember? Elhanan. Well, Mike, there could have been two Goliaths. Really? Do you think so? There could have been two people who had a spear as long as a weaver's beam who were more than nine feet tall. Doubt it. So this is an interesting thing, right? Don't let me rub you the wrong way, but the Bible disagrees with itself about who did this. Why would it do that? Because, right, each book is telling you something, a different perspective. If we bog down and say which one's factually true, I think we miss the point. We missed the point. If we think about it, though, the story is building a particular narrative of meaning for us. This means something different than this means, and the author knew what they were doing and made that choice. Does that sort of make sense? This bothers our Western notion of history, but remember, people didn't write history objectively until like 200 years ago, and we still haven't even figured that out. How do you write an objective history, right? Because it's all relative to the observer. What people wrote in the olden days are things more like, we call them hagiographies. If you ever read a biography of a saint, it is full of things that are spectacular because it's trying to inspire you to live spectacularly. Think about how rarely we talk about Martin Luther King Jr. being a philanderer. He was absolutely an awful philanderer. We, we keep that under the rug because that's not inspiring. 
And by the way, that doesn't disqualify what he did for the world. It's interesting that, that we'll um, disqualify <laughs> who, who we pick and choose to disqualify on that one charge. I just want to point that out. We're incredibly inconsistent with that, right? Um, you won't read it in a children's book about Martin Luther King because it would distract you from the good things the book is trying to inspire you about. Same thing happens when we read the Bible. Sometimes they choose to tell us the bad things. So remember, in this book, in Chronicles, we don't hear about David raping Bathsheba and killing her husband, who, by the way, was one of his friends. This told us that. Uriah the Hittite is one of his elite bodyguards. That means he knew him. <laughs> means he probably knew where he lived. Means David probably knew what his wife looked like. And that wasn't some chance that he was up there looking around one day. Chronicles ignores that. And what I think our reading does really well this week, more so than it does in, in other times, is it tells us that probably the overarching goal of Chronicles is to help us think about the temple, and particularly as a house... So we're thinking about God's house, but we're also thinking about the house of David being established, right? So there's that interesting word play where David says to God, I'll build you a house, I'll build you a temple, and God says, no, I'll make you a temple, <laughs> figuratively. I'll, I'll make your kin a temple for my presence and leadership. There's a lot of rub here, because remember, when David says, I'll build you a temple, God says, I'd like that. No, thank you. Do you remember? God says, no. <laughs> that was how I read it. And then notice that David says, oh, I get that, God. And then David goes and builds a temple anyway. Did you notice that? God left the answer at no. God never said that's okay. But as you read the book, notice that David decides to do it even though God left the answer at no. If you read carefully, God says no and never changes that. David goes ahead with it. Now, he doesn't build the temple himself. Please notice he buys the land. He accrues all the merchandise. He makes the architectural blueprints. And there's a couple of things that you need to know about temple that you may not have got from the reading. I know I'm speeding through it. Please, you can also say, Mike, I know you're in a hurry and all that, but we want to talk about what we read, so shut up. You can say that. Um, what's really good to know that I told you last week is that David grew up in this town called Bethlehem, and there's this sort of wordplay in Hebrew that means house of bread. So that means Nebraska in the United States, or that means Georgia if you're in the Soviet Union. It's where you grow all the food. But it's not a Hebrew word. <laughs> it's a Jebusite word related to Hebrew. It means house of Lehem, which is a god with a small g. The way the Jebusites worshipped their gods was by building them temples. 
Those were places where the gods quote-unquote lived. Now, ancient people were not stupid. They did not think that, um, that gods only lived in some house and needed to be fed like human beings. All that was representative, right? Whether that was here or that was in India. Sometimes you look at statues of like Kali and she's got eight heads, I mean, sorry, eight arms, and all this, you know, oh, people thought gods were weird. No, all that's meant to represent is that they're superhuman, and they've got these multiple arms because humans don't have that. They're much more capable than we are. And sure, they dressed the statues of the god, but they didn't really believe they were dressing the gods. All that was a physical way of showing care to what's unseen. What they did believe, though, even though the gods were unseen, was that gods had houses or shrines in which their presence was somehow more, more manifest than other places. That's not an ancient idea, let's be honest. We still act like that today. We know God's everywhere all the time, but aren't there places where you feel God's presence more and more? We call them sanctuaries. Even if they're outside, we call them that, right? Uh, so they did that, uh, and they had uh, different ways of dealing with things like sin and obligating God to respond and uh, giving thanksgiving, and they did that primarily through sacrifice. Now, one way that we can think about sacrifice is as appeasing gods. You know, the old way is, and this, this is true in some cultures, um, you give the god food. Now, we know the gods don't come and physically eat the lamb, but they eat the essence of the lamb. I don't know if that makes sense. So, you know, Aristotle split things into two categories. There's the element, and then there's the, the accident. If you're Catholic, just to put this in perspective, you don't think that that bread is literally flesh in its accident, but you do think the element has turned to flesh. That's what transubstantiation means. Not that it has become skin, but that it, in taste or touch or physicality, but it has become flesh in its deeper meaning. Does that make sense? The wine doesn't change into blood like you would taste or, or in substance, but it is blood. <laughs> That's what is happening. The lamb is killed or the ox is killed and the gods consume not its physicality, but its, but its deeper identity, its element. So you feed the gods and that's the deal. And what happens is you put a sacrifice up on an altar and, and you know who actually gets to eat the physicality of it, don't you? The priests and the worshipers. They didn't just burn the whole thing up. They slaughtered it. They burned some up to the gods. And then, because we've given the god a gift, the gods give us back the meal. Ancient people, in general, only ate meat that had been sacrificed to other gods. That didn't matter if you were Hebrew or Greek or Roman. Butchers were divine institutions. So when you read about priests and Levites, their job is to offer sacrifices to God, but they were butchers. You did not butcher your own meat in the Hebrew world. If you killed an animal or it died, you took it to the Levite, they offered a sacrifice to God, and then everybody got a share. That was really important, right? Because animals take a lot of grain to grow. People only ate meat on feast days. They didn't eat it like we do whenever we wanted. They had no refrigeration. The only way you can make it last is to salt it. Really expensive salt. 
hard to mine, hard to find. That's why it's the root of the word salary. People were paid in salt. Or you could smoke it. But there's biblical injunctions that say, meat over three days, you don't eat that. That's because it would putrefy. Right? So, so when you've got meat, you're doing it to a God, the God gives you back the meat meal. This is an exchange. This is true even if you're Hebrew. The difference is, if you're a Jebusite or a Canaanite, you do that in a house, in one place in which the God's presence is more manifest than others. If you're a Hebrew prior to David, you did that in a tent. We didn't read that bit today, but before there was a temple, there was a tabernacle. And so the tabernacle had the Ark of the Covenant, God's footstool. That means God stood on it, didn't sit. And it moves around. It moves around any territory that the Hebrew or Israelite people are occupying. It moves to tell the people that God is, in, is not more manifest in one place than another, which is why you've got to move it. If you ever settle down, then you've, you've con- sort of constricted God's presence to one geography when it is not so constrictable. You can read this in Exodus or Deuteronomy, if you'd like. When God talks to Moses on Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, God says, anytime you build an altar, build it out of unhewn or unmortared stones. Do not build a permanent altar because I'm not permanently in one place. Some of you are nodding because you've heard that before. That's in the Torah. That's in the most important part of the Hebrew Bible. Do not make a temple. So, what's important to see is that David... changes the Torah. Because he makes a temple. Why would he want to do that? Because he grew up in a place where they had a temple which tells you David might have been a Hebrew, but he sure also was a Jebusite. We have a fancy name for when one religion interacts with another and sees some neat stuff and they bring it in. It's called syncretism. So just an example of that. The rosary, the Christian rosary, came from the Crusaders meeting Muslims and seeing them with these prayer beads, and they thought, God, I want that. (laughs) That's so cool, I want that. How can we make that a Christian thing? Instead of 99 names of Allah, right, which is not a Christian thing, well, now there's rosary beads to help you count prayers. Uh, The Muslims got it, by the way, most likely from India, (laughs) because they went all the way out to India, and it's a Buddhist prayer thing. Right, so counting on beads is not really unique to any tradition, but we see other people do stuff that's cool, and we say, that's cool, we want that. David sure thought that was cool. <laughs> he brought the God's house into the religious tradition. And notice that what Chronicles is kind of doing, and, and not necessarily in a, in a uniform way, is saying this is a good thing, it centralizes worship, and David left this gift to us. But again, please notice in the book itself, God still doesn't say it's a good idea. (coughs) 
Okay, that was my introduction. <laughs> There's a lot of tension here. There's a lot, a lot of tension here. If you didn't, should I tell you a little bit more? Or, or again, I want to make time for you because we read some tough stuff. Um, let me tell you about the floor plan of the temple, if this is okay. You know, essentially what we're looking at is some ancient technology that's not very good. As in, they don't really, at this time, did not know how to make joists. You know, the great thing about a joist is that you can combine shorter pieces of wood to hold up a roof. But since that technology is not around, you can really only make a, a building as tall as a tree you can find or as wide as a tree you can find. So God's house is something like 30 feet tall and something like 40 feet wide. I'm, I'm going to do that backward. It's something like that. To put it in perspective, it's like the size of Christ Hall. So sometimes in our head, we think the temple was this enormous thing. Not this one. The one Herod made is very big, but not the one David made. Jerusalem occupied four city blocks. Four. <laughs> the other interesting thing is the house David builds for his house, his palace, is three times bigger than the temple. Helps you know what his real priority was. So again, we read this stuff sometimes when we think, oh, look at all the stuff David did for God. And, and what we don't always pay attention to is that was a third of what he made for his own house. And that it's really easy to think, oh, they were the richest people on the planet. No, they weren't. <laughs> no. The richest people on the planet were Egypt at the time. And in Mesopotamia, much, much bigger buildings. Right? Israel is a small place with not a lot of uh, reliable natural resources. True to this day, struggle for the resources. They have innovative ways of getting them from their neighbors. Um, what this tells you is that they thought God was 30 feet tall. Because God stands up inside the temple. The other thing that the reading doesn't tell you exactly, you sort of have to know this, is David consults with this guy, Hiram of Tyre, about getting materials and building the temple and gets workers from Hiram of Tyre. Interestingly enough, we know from archaeology, Hiram of Tyre had actually himself just built a temple in Tyre or Sidon, hard to say which one, had built a temple to Baal. Baal is expressed in a bull, by the way. That's Baal's like animal spirit. The temple David builds in Jerusalem is a replica of the temple to Baal in every single way. Out front of the temple in Jerusalem, there's 12 bronze bulls on the back of which is this big basin. 12 bronze Baals. <laughs> and this becomes an interesting bit when we read scripture, right? Is the person writing this is writing it for whom and for why? Obviously, the person is a believer in the temple David builds. So this is positive. But please notice, this is a violation of commandment number two. No graven image. It's also a violation of everything God tells Moses about the way in which God is to be worshipped. Not in one locale, not in a house, in a moving tabernacle. 
we can say, oh, look, God changed God's mind. <laughs> that's a tough thing to do. I mean, that's a, if we want to do that, then, then when God will change God's mind again is hard to know, right? I mean, so this is a difficult thing. Perhaps we decided that God could work with this better than that. Uh, obviously, there's an exchange that happens whenever we go from one to another. I just want to sort of say that up front about the temple and introduce some of the difficulty with it. The other difficulty is the temple is attached to the palace, which, remember, is three times bigger. So who controls the temple? The king. We're used to that. Henry VIII, through the Act of Supremacy, controlled the Anglican Church, appoints the bishops, etc. That still happens in England today, right? The queen makes the Archbishop of Canterbury. We don't do that here because we're a federalist system. <laughs> the president has nothing to do with the church. I mean, we, 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 we did that. Um, but in some way, that Henry VIII model is what's at work here. And when there's a clash between the high priest and the king, who do you suppose is going to win? In general, it's the king. <laughs> okay, I might have just gunked up the reading. But, but I want you to hear thematically when we talk about temple, all of this is sort of going on in the, in, 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 in the background. Um, another thing that's probably really helpful to hear is this little phrase shows up quite a bit in our reading, and we'll see it over and over again, that the people play the prostitute. And um, there's this interesting thing happens in Canaanite worship that sometimes actually ends up happening at the temple David builds as well. We'll, we'll notice that as we go through. In the Canaanite temple, there are... Um, there are these people, they're usually captured in battle. You can read about this in James Michener's book, The Source. It really seems to quite reflect the archaeological evidence we have. Um, they're called sacred prostitutes. So these are women who initially might be virgins and are awarded to the most successful people in a village the first time, and then their sort of importance goes down as, as they continue to have encounters with people. But... By and, by and large, men go to the temple and have sex with women to encourage the gods to have sex in heaven. So they sort of believe that fertility happens when the male god consorts with female goddesses, and they're trying to encourage the gods to do that by engaging in this at the god's house. Now that may sound really weird. It's possible you've never heard that before. The preponderance of um, scholarship is, is all about that. So when you hear that Israel is playing the prostitute, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a double speak. It's not just degrading them that they're, that, that they're paying for, for sex or something like that. It's saying that they're worshiping sort of other gods as in this very way <laughs> that is not meant to happen at the temple or the tabernacle. It sort of becomes an indictment against the people, but you'll hear it over and over and over and over again. You can understand, perhaps, that if this way of worshiping God was not just okay, but like important, why some people were loath to give it up. It wasn't just that you could go do that, it's that you were supposed to do that. 
Don't you see? That, I mean, that, that's, that's really, really different from the way our, our brains work around this. Okay, now that was probably way too much. I have a question about that. I mean, I read Mitchner's book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the term prostitute, I mean, today, would mean someone who is being paid for sex. When they are in the temple, I don't remember, my, I don't remember whether if a person went to a prostitute in the temple, they had to pay an, an alm or something like that yeah. to go into the temple. And, yeah. And, and sort of the way this works as a woman, and, and we talked about this last week, unless you've got a husband who owns you, then your really only choices are your dad owns you and pays a declining investment or you belong to the gods who manage you through the priests. So yes, you, you, you pay to do this so the priests can feed the women who otherwise have no existence. And if you're a widow, you can be one of these and be taken care of. In but the temple. In, in a temple or in a shrine. And remember, there's not... If you go to India, there's shrines all over the place. That's probably a good way to think of this. There's lots of shrines because there's lots of gods. It doesn't mean that there's no straight cash prostitutes like happens today, but I will tell you most prostitution is what we'd call cultic in the sense that it has a, it has a religious orientation and function. And, and again, this is hard for us to get our heads around, but the same is true about butchering. Butchering is all cultic. All of it is cultic. Which for us is weird because most of our meat comes from, well, Greeley, Colorado. <laughs> you know, and let me tell you, there's nothing sacred there. Uh, you, you don't want to visit it. You can through Upton Sinclair's book, The Jungle. I know that's 100 years ago. Uh, not much has changed. Not much sacred happens at a meatpacking plant. No, to, to the opposite, right? I really don't want to talk answers yeah. all the time. And I would tell you, objectively, not much great happens there, too. In case you're interested, we have this yucky word. In, um, it, it's yucky because it, it shows up and we know we're not supposed to do it. This word, fornication, um, that's derived actually from this Latin word fornix, which is an archway. Think about the Colosseum has all those arches. Prostitution happened in the, in the Roman world under these archways. They sort of were like red lights in Amsterdam, and they could have a curtain you draw, but that's where cultic prostitution happened was under a fornix. Hence, we call it fornication. Cultic. Cultic. Sacred. To have sexual encounters to encourage the gods to do in heaven what we've done on earth. Interesting to think that the Lord's Prayer invites us to do the other thing. <laughs> Let us do on earth what you're doing in heaven instead of you do in heaven what we do on earth. <laughs> Hopefully it... What about the children? If there were children, how were they? Children of sacred prostitutes? Yeah, they, certain, they, they, they happen a couple of ways. Some of them are aborted because that's, that's no good. Uh, some of them become sort of uh, temple servants. But they're probably not going to come, grow up to be priests. Think about the power that a priest has. That, that's more of an aristocratic function. Yeah. I hope I didn't kill the narrative. We didn't even talk about a lot of it yet. Um, I, I, I have a 
question that I found uh, throughout the reading. There sure were a lot of people there at that time. Yeah, it yeah. Sounds, seems like there's a lot of people. In fact, when you count the army, it's ginormous, right? But please know. Especially know. for the size of land you're talking about. Yeah, those numbers are, I don't, I don't know a single, I haven't read a single reputable study that would say there's any accuracy to those numbers. So what's the point, I guess? So a part of the point, I think, is to say, is to look back at the golden age and talk about how golden it was. And next week we'll read how Solomon had more money than anybody in the world. There's no way that's true. No way. Because Israel was a buffer between the United States and the Soviet Union, to put that in perspective, right? Buffers don't have those resources. Egypt does. Mesopotamia does, right? Israel only exists in order to kind of create a demilitarized zone, and, and it doesn't even always exist. Sometimes the powers say, we don't need you anymore. Um, so, so part of it's sanitization. The other thing that's really important, and um, you, can, you can sort of get this, two different words for this. One is gematria, the other one's numerology. You're going to find numbers that show up over and over and over again in the Hebrew Bible that are, sorry, they're magic numbers. Seven's a magic number. It actually means perfect in Hebrew, seven. Uh, the other one that shows up a lot are 12. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus is tempted 40 days in the wilderness. Um, there's 40 years traveling in the desert. I mean, there's, there's numbers like this that show up. We don't always know the significance of certain numbers because they haven't been maintained. But I will tell you, the age of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're really weird because each one of them is like... <laughs> I'm going to get this wrong, but, but I want you to know it's something like Abraham's age is like 7 squared plus 5 squared plus 3 squared. And Isaac's age is something like 8 squared plus 6 squared plus 4 squared or something like that. And you start to say, do they really live to be that old? Or is this some kind of like numeric pattern that... I mean, ancient people weren't dumb, let's just be honest, right? I mean, it, it, Egyptians got pied at like 4 digits. And if, and if we were building a model of the world with that, it'd be off by two inches. I mean, so, like, they did, they did fine, you, you know. So this sort of stuff was not lost on ancient people. So I think you've got to look at numbers. And let's look again at this whole book. This whole book is trying to tell us something symbolic more than it is factual. If, we got all, if you want more facts, go read 1 and 2 Samuel. You'll hear about... David raping Bathsheba. You'll hear about him being anointed. You'll hear that when Solomon is chosen to be king, I mean, David doesn't even remember doing that, and he's super ancient. He doesn't get up and make a big speech. Right? This, this, it's almost like what Chronicles is trying to do is say, here's the golden age, everything was great, and we need to live into that golden age instead of where we've become. Does that maybe make sense as what the narrative's doing for us? We've got to support the temple. That's a great thing. Notice what the temple does is it unifies the people. It probably does, but unifies them at what cost? I mean, that's the thing to hold before us as we read two chronicles um, to come back to. We don't know. We don't know. Uh, I mean, one option is it's written around the time of Solomon or after his death. 
Another option is that it's written during the exile by the people looking back. I mean, they're looking back because the temple gets destroyed in this year. I mean, burned to the ground. And they're sort of like, oh no, God's house is gone. Where's God? Woe is us. It used to be so good. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, 